0: So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of John, uh, John chapter 15, and I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 764 of your church Bibles. If you don't have a copy of uh, God's Word, there should be a navy blue uh, Bible in the pouch in front of you. Uh, Just take it. If you don't own a copy of the Bible and put your name in it, and it's yours. You can take it home. John chapter 15, verses 1 through 11 is where I'll be reading on page 764. You can also follow along with me on the screen behind me. Jesus is speaking. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Some of your versions say vine dresser. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean. Uh, That word also means pruned. Because of the word I've spoken to you, remain in me and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be given you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. This is God's word. Tim Keller is uh, one of my favorite authors, Uh, The Prodigal God, uh, Counterfeit Gods, uh, Generous Justice. And he also pastors a Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. And this is what he said about the 9-11 attacks. He said, I remember the smoke from downtown, visible everywhere for days, and the stench. It lasted for days. You could smell it everywhere. No one asked where the smell came from. We didn't want to know. The following Sunday, September the 16th, at Redeemer, their ordinary attendance of 2,800 ballooned to 5,400. I'm trying to get my mind around that dynamic where, you know, if a thousand more people just showed up here, how that would affect everything. And one member recalls uh, Keller saying, to those who were just... You know, they couldn't, there were not enough seats, and they, he finally said, will you please just come back, and we'll do another service right after this one. And that's how they grew another service. And then he stood before his weeping congregation on September the 16th. I mean, can you at all remember the emotions that you felt from Illinois after the attacks? try to put yourself at ground zero. This congregation is just weeping. And their minister stands with God's word. He says, he said, "We don't know the reason that God allows evil and suffering to continue, but we know what the reason isn't. We know what the reason can't be. It can't be because he doesn't love us. And it can't be because he doesn't care." And why Keller says, because God the Father got involved with his son, Christianity alone tells that God lost his son in an unjust attack. And over the next several weeks at the church, their phone lines just kept getting flooded with more and more people who needed help and needed spiritual direction and needed counseling and Keller had to go out and actually raise money to pay for counselors to service this flood of need that had engulfed the church. And and then it got personal. In the next year, his wife found out that next spring that she had Crohn's disease, a debilitating uh, inflammatory disease. And then, 12 weeks after that, Keller himself was diagnosed with thyroid cancer. And this is what he says We had no choice. We had no choice. We had to put down deeper roots in Christ or perish. Now, is that not the message of John 15, 1 through 11? It's deeper roots in Christ or nothing. It's deeper roots in Christ or perish. When I read these verses, these verses, I'm hearing an answer to questions like, what what is immovable when what you thought was immovable collapses beneath you? What is that? What can you count on when what you thought you can count on just materializes, this Is not there. What can you depend on when you can't depend on anything else? In these verses, very clearly and very forcefully, Jesus says, you have me, you have me. The night before he was crucified, Jesus spoke these words somewhere between the upper room where the Lord's Supper, where the Last Supper had been held somewhere between the upper room and the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus tells his disciples that living for him takes total reliance, total trust, radical faith in him on him, and through him. And he's saying in these verses that if we don't have him, then we don't have life. It's that simple. And I believe that the apostle John who gave us this gospel here, I can't help but think that when he also wrote 1 John, he was remembering what Jesus said here because 1 John five twelve says, he who has the Son of God has life, he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. It's about total dependence. It's about an intimate spiritual relationship. It's about radical reliance. In a sentence, these verses say you must be rooted in Christ. You must be. Not you may be. Not have you thought about it. Not maybe you should consider. You must be rooted in Christ to have a fruit-bearing life that's what these verses say and and again here's why this matters church Uh, you know our weekend of service and everything else you know it requires the life of christ in and through our lives to impact our community for him listen if we don't have jesus love and jesus strength pulsating through us both individually and corporately as a church family, then all we're going to be doing on the 24th and 25th is spreading mulch. Okay? but because we are rooted in Christ, who is our life, who flows through our lives so that we can bear fruit for the glory of the Father. See, we're not just spreading mulch. Well, our very existence as a congregation is an extension of God's original promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when he said to this one man, from you I am going to create a nation, and through your nation all nations will be blessed. All nations. I'm going to bless the world through you, and God wants to bless our community through this spiritual community. And and so, Jesus, in these verses, he, he assures us who he is. He assures us who we are. He, he assures us what the end game is, what he wants. And then he tells us how all that's going to happen. And he does this through a very powerful word picture the word picture of a vineyard, a vine, a branch the fruit, the gardener, or the vine dresser. And so I just want to talk about each part of this picture, each part which forcefully supports the main truth of this passage, that you must be rooted in Christ to have a fruit-bearing life. So let's begin with the vine. The vine. Now, why vine? Well, he doesn't use this arbitrarily. I mean, the word picture of a vine was as vivid to the first century Hebrew as the, as, as the, the, the bald eagle is to the 21st century American. I mean, the, the, the image of the vine not only connected in Israel's history, but it, was, it affected their heart. I mean, the, listen, the committed first century Hebrew saw Israel as the center of the world and in the center of israel was jerusalem and in the center of jerusalem was the temple that magnificent temple herod's temple first century historian josephus tells us that the temple was decorated with with images of the golden vine and some scholars have you know, conjectured that maybe as Jesus was walking from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, as they're walking past the temple and seeing the, the moonlight uh, reflect off of this gold, that's where he begins this dialogue about the vine. The vine. And, and it wasn't just a golden vine. Josephus tells us that, that at the end of some of these branches were uh, uh, gold-fashioned clusters of grape the size of a man huge and vivid and pictorial and shimmering and Israel as this vine evoked a heritage and a history and a calling and a destiny. Listen to Psalm 80, verses 8 through 11. The psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. Isn't that a wonderful picture of the vine and the branches and the leaves and the fruit overshadowing the mountains It sent and the mighty cedars with its branches? It sent out its branches to the sea. That's the Mediterranean Sea it shoots to the river. That's the Jordan River, you see. Israel is this this lush, green, fruit-bearing vine. That was God's destiny for his people. But if you know Israel's history, you know it wasn't that. Israel's corruption, Israel's wickedness, Israel's idolatry, Israel's rebellion against God resulted in sour grapes. Isaiah 5 4 When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And the author doesn't mean organic. These were bad grapes. And so Jesus comes and he says i am he doesn't say i am the vine he says i'm the true vine the true vine that's an extraordinary claim he said i'm the real vine i'm the genuine vine i'm the authentic one vine no more of this bogus vine in, in john's gospel you know it's this is the seventh of the i am statements right i am the bread of life i am the light of the world i am the door i am the good shepherd I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And seventh, I am the true vine. Jesus is saying that God's vineyard no longer is a nation but a person. He now has one true vine. It's a person. And our spiritual life, and our destiny, and our future, the kingdom of God, which will one day overwhelm and become the new heavens and the new earth, is connected and dependent and contingent and subject to being attached to this one person, Jesus Christ. Furthermore, Israel, like every other nation, needs to ask itself if it's attached to him. In other words, Jesus is making the radical claim that he is the only means to a relationship with God the Father. The Gospels do not give us a wishy-washy picture about who Christ is. He's he's, he's not this some eccentric guru with a great personality who likes chamomile tea and whose life has become this legendary. You know, he's the true living Lord who walked and talked and lived in first century Israel and he was as real and as tangible and could be heard and seen just as visibly and real and tangible as you're seeing and interacting with me now. And he stood and he said, I am the true vine. He laughed, he hungered, he wept, he slept, he ate, he suffered, he died, he rose again, and he offers himself and his life today as he did when he first spoke those words. I'm the true vine. And and, and some find that totally, totally distasteful in our postmodern culture some find that you know the deity of christ jesus claimed to be god in the flesh it's just totally distasteful and you know they they our postmodern culture will say well you know i don't i don't mind him saying that you know he, he's a teacher he's a way but this say i'm the way i mean that's just they find that and and you know but that's this is who he is see you know you You can't say, well, I like like the randy part. I just don't like the bolting house part. Well, they're together. (laughs) It's indivisible, you see. And his character and his teaching and his miracles and his interaction can only be explained by his divinity. He says, I'm the true vine. I'm the only way to God. That's who I am. you know that? I'm the true vine. That's who I am, Jesus says. Who are you? The second part of this word picture deals with who we are. We're the branches, and the two are not the same. The vine and the branches are not the same. The branches are dependent on the vine. That's why Jesus says, You must remain in me. If you're going to have life that's truly life, Jesus said, You must remain in me. What does that mean? It means to remain, (laughs) it means to stay, abide, dwell. It means to dwell, continue. Don't leave my presence, Jesus says. Remain, verse four remain in me and I in you. That is, and see to it that I remain in you. It's the key verse, uh, rather, it's the key verb in these verses. Remain, remain. Now what what does it mean to remain in Christ? Well, Jesus tells us here. There's no mystery. First, there's to remain in Christ is to remain in his word. Verses three and seven. To remain means that, you know, what matters to me most is what Jesus says about me, about life, about death, about God, about Satan, about heaven, about hell. To remain in Christ is to rely totally on Christ as opposed to remaining in what others think or looking to others for my security, my affirmation, my significance, my validation. You know, there are two very uh, Christ-ordained practices that you see here at Windsor Road, Uh, baptism and communion, and Those Christ gave us as symbols and pictures of, you know, remaining in Him. For instance, concerning baptism, Paul tells us in Romans 6 that, you know, baptism is a picture of us being united with Him in a death like His, Our old self was crucified with him and one who has died has been set free from sin. So to remain in Christ is to acknowledge and believe and internalize the truth that the determining factor of my existence is no longer my past. It's Jesus' past and what he did. And this affects our prayer life. Verse seven, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. In other words, I need to learn to desire what it is Jesus desires and then pray accordingly. And and, and so when I learn to desire what Jesus desires, that's when my prayers are answered. Remain in the word. Remain in the gospel. That's how you remain in me. And, And then Jesus also says remaining in me means to remain in his love. Remain in his love as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Do you know where you stand with Christ? Do you know? If you're a believer, you, there's no mystery about where you stand with Christ. He loves you. He loves you. And so it's why he came. It's why he suffered. That's why he died. It's why he rose. He loves us. There's an old preacher, Octavius Winslow. Now that's a cool name. (laughs) Octavius Winslow once said that all of Christ's life was a display of love. Listen to this His, His incarnation is love stooping, his sympathy is love weeping, his compassion is love supporting, his grace is love acting. His teaching is the voice of love. His silence is the repose of love. His patience is the restraint of love. His obedience is the labor of love. His suffering is the travail of love. His death is the burning offering of love. His cross is the altar of love. His resurrection is the triumph of love. His ascension into heaven is the enthronement of love. His sitting down at the right hand of God is the intercession of love. Are you feeling this vast, oceanic-sized wave of Christ's love? Remain in it, Jesus says. Remain in my word, remain in my love, and then Jesus says, remain in obedience. Verse 10, if you obey my commands, you will remain in my love. And, and, and I go back to something uh, that the Apostle John writes later in 1 John chapter 2 verse 6, by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And the implication is you know how he walked. You know. You know how Jesus lived. His life was no secret. There's no mystery here. Our principal job in life as believers is not to uncover mystery. Our principal job is to to obey what's already been revealed. Our principal job is to imitate Christ. Don't we already know how to be a Christ-focused neighbor? Don't we already know how to be an ethical employee? Don't we already know how to love? Don't we already know how to live in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not meant to fret over how God wants to handle our possessions or finances or grief or anger or opportunities. Remaining in Christ means to imitate him. And when you imitate Jesus, you become a more of the person that God meant for you to be. You know, um, well, in, you know, in my business, so there's... I don't know, sometimes I think that, you know, pastors say, well, okay, if I can just you know, imitate a technique on this particular preacher, then, then I'll just grow, and the church will grow and by imitating technique, and so some do, and they end up kind of, it just kind of looks a little fake, it kind of looks a little, you know, well, they end up being less than who they're meant to be, you know what I mean? I'm thinking about one uh, pastor in, let's just say, North America. His name's Dorian. And um, <laughs> now this, is, this is true. This is like a truth. This is the real deal here, you know? And it's... So what kind of a congregation is grown here? A bunch that kind of look like that, right? If you're an Elvis impersonator, that would be... You would love that. And so it's like, oh... I've never been to a seminar on how to become this. I don't want to, you know? Anytime you, anytime you try to imitate someone you're not, you become less than who you're meant to be, unless that person is Jesus. And then you become more of what you're meant to be, you see? And, and really, here's how it works. <laughs> when you imitate Jesus, you don't become... More than what you're meant to be. You become less than what you're meant to be. And in doing so, you become more like him, which then means you become more of who he wants you to be, you see. See, see, God wants to kill yourself and then put his life in your life. That's what he wants. And that's what it means to imitate. And that's why you're a branch, so that his life can flow through you. And that brings us to the fruit section here. Jesus says, I'm the vine. That's who he is. He says, you're the branch. That's who you are. And at the end of that branch is fruit. And that is God. That is to God's glory. It's to God's glory that we bear fruit. Now, what do we mean by fruit? Well, first, let's define the word. Fruit. We're not just talking about apples or bananas here. Fruit here is a general word which means harvest or crop or result and so, so, so fruit is, harvest is what? Well, it, yeah, it's evangelism and making disciples. Verse 16, fruit that will last. It's also character, the fruit or the harvest of the Spirit, becoming more and more like Christ. Verse 17, love each other. You see, fruit has to do with everything that complies with the desires of Christ. Fruit has to do with sharing the life of Christ. And Jesus isn't more specific than that because he doesn't need to be. Loving one another is Christian fruit. Praying in Jesus' name according to his will, that's Christian fruit. Helping and serving and doing justice and uh, loving mercy, that's Christian fruit everything that brings God's glory, that's Christian fruit. Fruit is what we're expecting from the weekend of service. Fruit is the loving fellowship that I witness in our four-year here at the conclusion of our service. Fruit is what happens through the benevolence and food pantry ministries to our under-resourced family members here at church. That's fruit, Fruit is learning God's word, and, and, uh, and have you checked out our insight classes? Uh, Kevin Flint just gave me this brochure uh, between services about our upcoming uh, dynamic marriage class, and uh, it's one of, I believe, three classes, right, Brenda? Uh, we've got Romans, we've got dynamic marriage, and my mind escapes me. What's the third one? Do you remember? Beth Moore. Beth Moore thank you. I'm, you're, you're leading that, aren't you? Okay, sorry. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm the clueless visionary here, aren't I? All right. So, anyway, but this is fruit. This is fruit. And and fruit also has to do with our affections, church family. See, Christianity is, is not just a matter of learning doctrinal points, it's a relationship with a person that has an emotional effect on my life. Verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you. You see, there's something incomplete about Randy Boltinghouse joy. There's something incomplete about that. I, I, that's not enough, Jesus knows that, do I? I told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I'm thinking of something Charles Spurgeon said to his congregation years ago. I love this. I love this thought. We are now capable, believers are now capable of a joy which unfallen spirits could not have known, the joy of forgiven sin. Spurgeon says, I believe that forgiven sinners will have a love to God and to his Christ such as angels have never felt. The angel Gabriel cannot love Jesus as a forgiven man will. That's fruit. Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. And I'm going to pulsate my life through your life as you remain in my word and remain in my love and remain in obedience to me. And, and, and the results, the harvest is going to be fruit. Fruit. Fruit that will last. And then do you know what God does? Huh? Well, He cuts us. Right? And that's what we read there in verses 1 and 2. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. And here's the point. Here's the point. Either way, you get the knife. That's the point. Either way you get the knife. If you don't bear fruit, well, your very place as a branch is questioned. And if you do, well, expect the knife. Either way, you get the knife. I mean, anybody knows anything about gardening or or viticulture, you you know that you have to you have to prune a plant if you want fruit from the plant. And and when the vine dresser is done, when the gardener is done, the plant looks like a disaster. It looks terrible. This gardener has attacked this poor plant. I mean, this Sarah. Sarah just shivers when she sees me get out the hedge trimmer. I mean, she just—oh my goodness! I'm going to go. I'm, I have to leave. She can't watch this, you know. And of course, the difference is that God knows what He's doing, and, <laughs> and we don't think so. Because when he's done, I mean, look look at all that's left. And it looks wasteful. Because in fact, I mean, he's even cut the good things, the good things. And it's painful. And there's grieving that goes with it. He's but he's cutting away. He's cutting away our reliance on things that we have no business relying on, whether it's a home or a job or a person or a relative or a degree. I mean, all of these are good things, but they make really lousy vines. And he's doing this so that his greatness will be displayed. I like what David Platt writes in his book, Radical. He says that God puts his people in positions where they are desperate for his power, and then he shows his provision in ways that displays his greatness. And if you're wondering having been cut by the the vine dresser, if you're wondering where God is, let me just assure you this. The vine dresser is never closer to the vine and never more intimately involved than when he is holding the pruning knife. Christ promises, he says, if you remain in me, you remain in him, his word, his love, his life, then you're gonna grow. And when you grow, God's gonna prune you. And and that, he prunes you, meaning that he's standing right there next to you. And if you remain in Christ and rely on Christ, the same troubles that happen to everyone else. Listen, not everyone, not everyone survived, not everyone who survived 9-11 survived with a deeper faith in God. Not everyone did. But if you remain in Christ and you rely on Christ in the same troubles that happen to all, they won't make you less human. They'll make you more human. They won't make you uh, more foolish. They'll make you wiser. And when he prunes, we grow. And this kind of growth is more than an attendance figure on a Sunday bulletin. It is instead the extension of his work and his fruit bearing and his magnifying the Father. And if only we could remember this both individually and corporately. Will you remember this Monday morning at work? Will you remember this? and, And will you come to the conclusion that God has put you where he has you so that others may rest beneath your shade? And they will if you're rooted in Christ. And when you're rooted in Christ, you will, you will be a fruit-bearing life for the Father's glory. Well, I'm gonna pray here, and then you know what I want you to do in the next few minutes while Ben and the band come back up and lead another song? Here's your take Here's your take home. And I, I don't even want you to wait till you get home to put this. You, the word for the day is remain. Just remain. I want you to meditate on these verses here during this song. And then at the close of the song, I'm gonna come back and lead us to that second picture. That second picture that I spoke of. And that's communion. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your skilled, pruning hand. Do your work on us and in us so that through us the spirit of Christ's fruit would just grow and flourish so that this world might be blessed and know unmistakably that it comes from you. Amen.